we get started. For those of you that have been kind of following the saga of one of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, um, diagnosed with congestive heart failure last uh, spring, um, was told several times that he would never teach again. And um, they, didn't, they didn't take his car away from him, but they hid the keys, couldn't drive anymore, blah, 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 blah. It's pretty amazing the recovery he's made. He taught this morning at Gilbert for Priority Living. Yeah, he taught this morning. He drove himself there. He taught for 45 minutes, and then he hung around until noon and just talking to people. And he was so energized, and it's been a year since I've seen him like that. Um, now, he's not teaching Thursdays. He's just doing Wednesdays. So there were some people who drove out to Gilbert from Phoenix uh, this morning. I have to be out there on Wednesdays anyway, so I was there. But that's just, it, it's just, it was really exciting. You know, he's had no sense of purpose for the last six months, and now he's, like, got purpose back. So that's really exciting. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, I tested this out a few weeks ago on Thursday night when we did that theology th uh, Thursday on freedom, and I, and I really liked it. Um, it's the idea that if I show a, a, a really cool video for two minutes before we get into the teaching, if the teaching's no good, at least you had a really cool video. So watch this, watch this Tim Hawkins video. Chick-fil-A <laughs> I could eat there seven times a day Where the people laugh and children play Oh, I'm in love with Chick-fil-A Suddenly I need waffle fries in front of me With some nuggets and a large sweet tea Oh, Chick-fil-A you set me free Kids get in the van So we can go there today But their stores are closed Oh, I know, cause it's Sunday Chick-fil-A What a dirty, rotten trick to play now I have to settle for Subway Oh, I'm in love with Chick-fil-A Chick-fil-A Of course, I'm not on YouTube, so you can get any of that stuff on YouTube. All right, so uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 John. We're going to read it all the way through because it's just a postcard, and then we'll go back and talk about what we're going to do and talk about uh, 2 John. If you're wondering where 2 John is, it's pretty easy. <laughs> it's right after 1 John, right before 3 John, which is, they're both way in the back of the Bible, so close to Revelation. So here's what John writes. The elder... To the elect lady and her children, who's this lady and how many children does she have? Whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us and will, 
uh, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Are you getting an indication right out of the gate what this letter might be about? Okay. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly, greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So... Here's this idea behind New Testament postcards. Um, there, there are four letters in the New Testament that are so short, they're only one chapter, that in theory you could just fit them on a postcard. Uh, does anybody even remember what a postcard is? I don't... Okay, that's... It's interesting to me. I'm, I'm reading this absolutely fascinating book about... Um, the World's Fair in Chicago in 1893, so 125 years ago. And last night, I read a passage in there. This, this guy put together this incredible book of the history of it, what, what all the architects had to go through to be able to pull this thing off, and the fact that there was a mass murderer in town during all of this, a very famous mass murderer. It just, he's got all this put together, a lot of research. But at one point, he talks about a postcard that one of the characters, this historical character, wrote, and, and he wrote this, in 1893, long flowing handwritten letters were an everyday occurrence. Postcards were an oddity. I, I look around this room and I can see there are some people who can remember long flowing handwritten letters, right? When was the last time you got a long flowing handwritten letter? It's been a while, probably. And if you have gotten one recently, that's the oddity now. Now, what I'm finding, I'm on Twitter, nobody has... Nobody even has the attention span to read a tweet now, and that's 140 characters, okay? I get more actions on tweets that are six words or less than on any tweet where I'm pressing up against that 140-character limit. It's interesting. They, they, nobody will read them. They're just too long. Bumper stickers are hard for people to read anymore. I mean, it's just tragic what, where we are. But at any rate, it's just interesting. That these letters are short, in the New Testament compared to all the other letters. We think of Ephesians as a short letter in the New Testament. It's six chapters long, and it's deep. And for us at Redemption, it's taking us 40 weeks to go through it. Um, you think about Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Hebrews. These are, these are long 
letters. And interestingly enough, in their original context, these letters were meant to be read in one sitting by the churches that were receiving them in context. That's why we work so hard every week to keep the, con uh, the continuity of the narrative and the context going each and every single week. But these four letters that we're going to look at, so 2 John, 3 John, uh, Philemon, and Jude, and that's the order that we're going to take them in, these four postcards that we're going to look at essentially are postcards because they really just have primarily one thing that they're trying to get across. So you think about 1 Corinthians, and Paul just goes through a litany of things in there. In, the, in, in Romans, it's called the Gospel of Paul. He goes through the entire Gospel and the application of it. Um, there's all these different things that most of these letters are dealing with, not these short letters. Generally, there's, there's one main thrust. For instance, Jude, it, it's just famous in Jude, verses 3 and 4. Jude writes, I meant to write to you about the common faith that we share, but this issue of false teachers has come up, and then that's just what he deals with. In Philemon, it's merely... It's, Merely, that's probably the wrong word to use for it because Philemon is one of the most incredible letters in the New Testament. Uh, I could do four weeks on Philemon. But it's, it's just Paul making a request to Philemon to accept back his slave, Onesimus, as an equal. That's it. But there's just so much depth in that letter. And 2nd and 3rd John have their themes as well. Uh, in, these, in these letters, what I'm going to try to do each night, these next four Wednesdays, is give you the history and the context, give you the theme and the teaching, uh, talk about how the gospel is brought out in each of these postcards, and then give us some application. All right? Well, it has to be all right, because that's what I'm going to do. So, Second uh, John, it's written by John the Apostle. So it's the same one who wrote the gospel of John, first and third John, and the one who Jesus gave the revelation to. So he wrote... Um, the last statistic I saw and read about, he wrote 26.5% of the New Testament. So he's one of the three most prolific authors of the New Testament. Uh, Second John was written around 85 or 90 A.D. Uh, John is the only one of the apostles that did not die as a martyr. But they tried to kill him as a martyr. Anybody know how they tried to kill him? They tried to boil him in oil, and he survived. It was a miracle of God. Yeah. So he lived to a very ripe old age and then died presumably of natural causes. And this letter is written to a church, not to some lady. Although that case has been made, attempted to be made by some scholars, that there was some lady that he was writing who had a lot of kids, okay, um, it just doesn't fit the context or the grammar. For instance, the liberal use of the ancient Greek word for the plural you. So in Texas, how many of you have, I've lived in Texas a couple of times. Anybody? Okay. So in Texas, you know, you use the y'all. And y'all can, uh, so I'll say to Colleen, how y'all doing? And that's, you know, but what, what if it's a plural y'all? All y'all. That's how how all y'all doing? Okay, that's, oh, there's a lot of all y'alls in Second John. So he's writing to a church, okay? And here are the three themes, but really, um, 
this is the one where you could say there's really two themes, and, and the first two themes kind of go together. But here they are. He wants to defend the truth. Now, you heard that in the, very, in the opening, the introduction. Of the, just truth, 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 truth. He wants to defend the truth. Truth is really important to John. You read his other documents in the New Testament, you'll find that that is just a big deal to him. Secondly, he wants to clarify what love is. He wants to clarify what true love is, and love is a big deal to John too. You could sum up John's writings really with three words, believe, truth, and love. It doesn't cover everything, but that's, those are the, of all of his New Testament writings, those are the, those are the main uh, themes. And then the third thing is to in, encourage faithfulness to doctrinal purity. And I'll just be honest with you, one of the reasons I like these Wednesday nights is because I have a little bit more time than Sunday morning, and so I can go down a few more rabbit trails which may or may not be of any interest to you, but they're of interest to me, and I have the microphone. So going back now to verses 1 through 3. The elder, talk about that, to the elect lady, the church, and her children. Every church has, we're all children here of this church, Redemption Arcadia, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, in truth and love. So you get it? Truth and love. Truth and love is a big deal to him. So that word elder is the word presbyteros. Anybody ever heard of the Presbyterian Church? That's kind of where they get that name, okay? It's from that Greek word. There are three New Testament words that sort of describe leadership and offices in a New Testament church. Uh, one of them is episkopos. What denomination is that word? It's episcopalian. Okay, episkopos. Episkopos literally means an overseer. So an elder in a church is an overseer. Steve Wheeler is here. He's an elder at Redemption Arcadia. He is an episkopos. So people call me Pastor Frank, you can call him Episcopal Steve from now on. I want you to do that, okay? Then there is diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon from. Are any of the deacons? Yeah, we have uh, Shane and Charlie are here. They're deacon. They're diakonos, okay? And that is an office in the church, but it's not an overseer. A, a deacon, primarily, their job description is to pray and to serve, Okay? And then there is presbyteros, an elder. An elder is specifically an older man with wisdom, maturity, and qualifying experience. And therefore, a man who can be put into a position of authority, an elder, or who has a position of authority in the church merely because of his influence and wisdom that people go and seek. Now, you've been around organizations or in communities before where there's somebody who does not have a title or an official position, but he's a leader, right? He's an influencer. He's, he's the one that when, or she is the one, when somebody is speaking, when that person is speaking, everybody else quiets down and they're really interested in listening. It's the old E.F. Hutton commercial, if you remember that, okay? So it's somebody who can be put in a position of authority, but often has authority without the position or title. John the Apostle is that man. He is a presbyteros, especially at this point. He's in his 80s or 90s when he's writing this letter. 
okay? And he's in Ephesus when he writes, he's the pastor in Ephesus. Think about the apostolic heritage and legacy of the church in Ephesus. It was founded by Paul. Timothy was there for a while. John was the pastor late in his, uh, in his later years. And he writes to the elect lady and her children, to some church, to the church and its members. The, the church is the bride of Christ, and she has children. And, and it's the elect lady, chosen. That, that word that, that we translate elect lady is literally the word chosen. It recalls John, uh, Jesus' statement in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 16, when Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. It's the exact same word as elect. And then you have the greeting Grace, mercy, and peace. Uh, Paul's favorite greeting is grace and peace. Uh, John adds mercy to that. But the way he says it is also different than the way Paul says uh, grace and peace. Paul says grace and peace to you. John says grace, mercy, and peace is something that we all have. And the point that scholars, they, they believe that the point John is making, that scholars say, is that he's saying it's not only do, do we receive these things as believers in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace, but we are also purveyors of these things. We, we live a life that's, or we're called to live a life that's gracious and merciful. And generally speaking, if you live a life that's gracious and merciful, it will lead to peace, Right? And, and notice the immediate emphasis on truth. Right out of the gate, he assigns the characteristic of eternality, eternal, to truth. If tr now, in our culture today, we are told repeatedly all the time that the only truth that exists is truth that's bound by context and a person's heart. All truth is bound by the context it's in and a person's heart. You can't transfer contextual truth anywhere else. You can transfer your heart truth anywhere else, but apply it any way you want in any situation you want. And the problem with contextual and heart church, uh, truth is that it's not eternal. Context end, hearts end in this physical world. So, Right out of the gate, John assigns a characteristic to the nature of truth that defies what our culture says truth is today. So the world's truth is temporal. That means it's always changing. How many of you sometimes feel like you can't keep up with what the world's truth is anymore? I, I feel that way. I'll, just when I'm starting to settle in and understand what words I'm supposed to use now, they change them again. One author says that's so that people can be perpetually offended. And I believe that that might be part of it. Okay? There is truth with a capital T, and it's eternal and it's absolute. One Old Testament, I've been reading a commentary on uh, the book of Exodus lately. I've been just getting fascinated with all this Old Testament muck and mire. It's really interesting. And, and he writes in there, this is a Jewish 
Old Testament scholar. He's not a Christian. And he writes this. God is the only absolute in a universe of relativity. That's really good. That's really good. His name is Michael Cohen, by the way. Yes, there is some truth that's contextually bound and relative. Some, but not all. And here's the problem with contextually bound um, relative truth. You can't always count on it. That's the problem with it. You can count on the absolute truth, the eternal truth of God. And please understand, this is the most important thing to understand about truth. And, and John would say this, the, the, the Apostle John would say this. Uh, in the gospel of Jesus, truth is not just propositions and principles, but it is a dynamic power that abides in believers and empowers them to walk in truth and to discern what truth is and to love in truth. It's not just principles. It's a dynamic power because it's contained in God who is in us, the Holy Spirit. And we are in him. We are in Christ. Paul says 176 times in his letters, we are in Christ. So we are in the truth. Verse 3, truth is previewed again as is love. Two main themes of this postcard. So look at verses 4 and 5. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, so he's asking the leadership of the church, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. He rejoiced in the fact that they're walking out their love and truth. He rejoiced at this. So he's getting, he's getting good reports back about this church. Um, I'll talk more about this next week. But we share God stories at, at all of our big R redemption meetings once a month. And it's encouraging to us when we hear about the wonderful things that are happening at the other redemption churches. And other redemption churches are encouraged by hearing about what's going on at Arcadia. And, and then he talks about this command. Just as we were commanded, but it's not a new commandment. So this is kind of an important interlude to me. Again, I've been, been doing this Old Testament Torah Pentateuch stuff. Um, some of you know this, but do you ever, you ever wonder where this command originally came from? This command that he's talking about, that we love one another? Where did that originally come from? Well, Jesus said it in Matthew 22. Yeah, he did. So this was, this was a common thing in first century uh, rabbinic circles. All the... Um, Professional religious people, the rabbis and the teachers of the law and all of them, the scribes, they'd get together and, and it would be kind of like a, a 1960s bull session. They'd, they'd sit around and they'd, they'd ask questions and then they'd exchange ideas, you know. I don't think there was any marijuana or anything there like it was in the 60s, but so they were thinking a little bit more clearly. But when when they came and asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? That was a common question that rabbis would ask each other all the time. All the time. What's the greatest commandment? And he says it's to love God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is the one that, Paul, that John is, is, is referencing. Well, what was Jesus talking about in Matthew 22 when he said that? Anybody, 
Okay, so here you go. If you want to, you can turn there, but it'll be up on the screen. Um, I'm going to go to Leviticus 19. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book in the Bible. If you've ever tried to read the Bible straight through, starting in Genesis, you're usually pretty good through Genesis and, and most of Exodus until you get to about... Um, well, you get through chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments. And then, and then that book of the covenant starts to be unfolded. And you kind of slow down. You get a little bogged down. And then, and then it's 16 chapters about the tabernacle. And, and what people are supposed to wear and how the tabernacle is supposed to be built. And that's pretty much when everybody gives up. So you never get to Leviticus. Which is fascinating because it talks about all these interesting skin diseases. And what happens to your hair when you're sick and things like that. Really fascinating stuff. Well, in the midst of, of, of Leviticus 19, this is what God says. Starting in verse 9. And, and he's just laying out some laws, some commandments, some ways that you're supposed to live out your life as a person who is in relationship with God. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You'd go through and you'd harvest the field, but the first time through you couldn't get everything. You'd always leave a little bit behind. Some would fall down onto the ground. Here's what God's saying. He's saying, don't go all the way out to the edge of your fields. Leave the edge of your fields unplucked, unharvested, and leave the gleanings. Just go through once, that's it. That's your harvest. You're supposed to leave the rest, probably about 10% of your harvest, for who? Strangers, sojourners, the immigrants. I just stepped in it, I know. Okay? The, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. You're supposed to leave that for them. Okay? Uh, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare... Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. <laughs> See, he loves to do that. Either. Okay, here's why you're going to do this. Because I'm God. Okay? Now, we parents, we love to do that, okay, to our kids, right? I don't know why it doesn't carry the same force. Probably because we're not God. But don't you, you know, why do I have to do that? Because I said so. I'm the parent, right? I'm the daddy. Okay, well, here you go. This is where that originated from, too. I'm the Lord your God. Okay. Verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the norm, name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You're supposed to pay him right away. Pay him immediately for the services he has rendered. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. What does that mean, put a stumbling block before the blind? Did you know that one of the recreational uh, things that people in ancient cultures would do is they would put stumbling blocks in front of blind people and laugh when they fell over it? God says, mm, no, not going to do that. But you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not, this is interesting, here you go. 
You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. How often in our justice system do people win judgments because they're rich and influential or because they're poor and oppressed and no other reason? God is saying you have to look at the evidence. That's the only thing. There's no partiality. None whatsoever. You have to take it by the merits of the cases. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. What are the merits? You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your uh, neighbor. I am the Lord. What does it mean to stand up against the life of your neighbor? Anybody know what that phrase means? You're not to impugn the reputation of your neighbor. You're not supposed to gossip about your neighbor or slander your neighbor. Gossip, slander, impugn. Okay? I am the Lord. Now, here we go. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's where Jesus got this. Like Paul, Jesus is rooted in the Old Testament. Like Paul, John is rooted in the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament is not irrelevant. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not destroy it. The law is still good and holy and wonderful. We can't keep it. That's why we need Jesus. But it's not something to be cast aside. It's something to learn from and value. And out of this truth, of this command, will flow love. Jesus says, this is the greatest of commandments. Love God and love others. Um, there's a church, an ancient church historian named Jerome who writes about uh, the Apostle John's uh, last years as the pastor in Ephesus. Um, he was so infirmed, I kind of imagine us maybe doing this with Tom someday, but he was so infirmed that they would, they would carry him in on a pallet. Four guys would carry him in, walk him down the center aisle, and then they would set him up here to preach. And he would sit there, and Jerome said that he would just look at the church, and, and his message was always, little children love one another. Little children love one another. Jesus has loved you. You need to love one another. That was his primary message, week in and, and week out. And, and then you also look at how that, that fits with what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Paul writes, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, reap, will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. How many of you feel like giving up when you're doing good and it doesn't seem to be working, nobody cares, nobody notices, you're getting pounded? Um, talking to a guy just recently, and, and he's recounting how life has been going for him the last couple of months and it hasn't been going well 
but he's telling me what he's doing in the midst of that. And he's, frust- he's very frustrated. He's telling me what he's doing in the midst of that. And, and I just said, ah, you've done everything right. <laughs> you've done everything right. And yet he's still getting hammered by life. You ever feel like that? That ever happened? Yeah. This is, this is why Paul writes something like this in Galatians. This is why Jesus says, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. This is why Peter says, look, don't go out looking for suffering because you're going to suffer enough doing everything right. So why would, you go, why would you go out looking for suffering doing wrong stuff? Why would you do that? You're going to do things right and you're going to get pounded for it. Paul says that, don't give up. And then he says this, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Do good to everyone. That's another way of saying, love everyone, serve everyone. I know it's hard, especially in traffic in Phoenix. I get that. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about truth. I've, I've, I've told this story before. It's, it's just one of my favorite stories. Uh, working on my Master of, of Arts in, in Human Communication at ASU, I was there for two and a half years. And by the way, I lo- you, you got to understand, that, that was a great experience. I loved it there. I'm, I'm indebted to the Hugh Down School of Communication. What a fabulous school, everything. But it was a fairly regular occurrence in classes that somebody would say, there is no such thing as absolute truth. No such thing as absolute truth. And I would always go, uh, uh, that sounds like an absolute truth claim. Then there'd be frustration and three hours of arguments. And that's how we get the professor off track. You see that, right? There is no such thing as absolute truth. Well, that sounds like an absolute truth to me. Okay? There is no such thing as binary. Okay, that's a binary right there. No such thing. That's a binary. There is or there isn't. That's a binary. Okay? But we do ask questions, and we should ask questions. We should ask questions. Doesn't mean we don't talk about it. We should probe. We should investigate. Is truth knowable? Deepak Chopra doesn't think so. He absolutely doesn't think so. He's made a living and a reputation on that stand. Can we find the truth? What truth are we looking for anyway? <laughs> Some of us really don't want to find the truth because we're afraid if we find it, it's going to conflict with what our heart is telling us. And that's a problem. Here's one. Is all truth good, usable, and worthwhile? Is all truth good, usable, and worthwhile. Andy Bernard on The Office. Here's an ethics bomb for you, okay? Is all truth good, usable, and worthwhile? What about the people who hid Jews during the Nazi occupation of Germany? They were lying to the government. Should they have told that? Boy, that's been an ethical debate for decades now. Did Dietrich Bonhoeffer deserve to die? the way he died. Questions like that. Um, I've mentioned this book before, the Seth Davidovitz's book, Everybody Lies. Fantastic 
fantastic book. Um, and he talks about, first of all, what do you think the theme of the book is? Everybody lies. <laughs> We're all liars. We're all born liars. Okay? But he also talks about how through technology we are closer than you may realize to being able to know every person's private thoughts. We're closer than we realize through technology to being able to know another person's private thoughts. That's truth, isn't it? Is that truth good, usable, and worthwhile? Is that, okay. I don't know if I want to know what Jackie's really thinking. I just don't know if I really want to know. You know? Uh, sorry, I have a 20th century pop culture reference. Some of you may, have re may remember a show called Gilligan's Island. Do you remember the episode when they found those um, mind-reading seeds? Gilligan found some mind-reading seeds, and they all started eating them. And what happened? They all, started, they all ended up hating each other. And I just remember that, in particular, that one scene where Ginger and Marianne were sitting back to back to each other. They weren't even talking to each other. They were just thinking thoughts back and forth and getting offended. Eddie said, you know, how'd that work out? Gilligan eventually destroyed the seeds. So well, that's not worthwhile. Anyway, according to Scripture, truth is Jesus. It's Jesus. According to Scripture, truth is Jesus. There you go. Is truth knowable? Yes. Can you find truth? Yes. Is that truth good, usable, worthwhile? Yes. It is. Uh, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, a truth, or a life, and there are many others. It's, there's a definite article there. In fact, the, the seven I am's, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I am the door for the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the true vine, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. I've heard this before. Well, that's a circular argument. It's a self-confirming argument. I suppose it is, but here's the deal. If you receive Jesus, you receive his words and you receive his claims. It's, it's what I say all the time. A lot of people uh, believe in God but not very many people believe God. Jesus is the truth. Sam Albury writes this, if Jesus is the creator of all things, and he is, and if the Bible, his word, has his seal of truth and power, then the, I love this line, then the Bible has the right to interrogate my life and culture and not the other way around. Truth, not my truth, but Jesus' truth. So there is capital T truth, there is absolute truth, and it's good, and it's perfect, and it's holy, and it should be pursued, it is knowable, and it's Jesus. So verses 6 through 8, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments, this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So again, he, he talks about love, and he, and he says that love is actually rooted in the commands of God. We don't like commands. 
even if they're from God. And the reason is because just, it's just natural for us to repel against authority. But what is it also natural for us to do when we have the authority? We lord it. We lord it. If we don't have it, we resist it. If we have it, we tend to lord it. That's the human condition. But genuine love comes, at least in part, out of the commands of God. And it's that agape love. I mentioned this, I don't know, last week or the week before. Well, it wasn't last week. I was in Illinois. So it must have been the week before. Um, this is that agape love. There's all kinds of different um, ancient Greek words that we translate as love. We have one word, love. And, it, and it's, I, I, I love you uh, lustfully and sexually. I love, you, I, I love you as a friend. I love you as a brother or sister. Um, I, I love pizza. <laughs> That's the same word, okay? The, the Greek is, in, in terms of love, is more precise. And the, the, the New Testament word primarily used is this word agape, which is not rooted in the worthiness of the person being loved, but is rooted in the character of the one doing the loving. All the other, all the other words for love are rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved. Not agape. Agape is rooted in the character of the one doing the loving. Because that's the way God loved us through Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish. It's husbands, love agape your wives as Christ loved the church. Without condition, selflessly, compassionately, love your wife because that's the way Jesus loves his bride, the church. Jesus says in Matthew 5, love your enemies. Agape your enemies. He's essentially saying, I know there's nothing worthy in your enemies to be loved. Love them anyway because you were enemies of mine and I loved you anyway. It's rooted in the character of the one that, that is doing the loving. So it's, it's, here you go. It's not a feeling. It's a commitment. And, and he says, walk in this love. That's a colloquial, a, an ancient Greek colloquialism for live this way. Anytime you see in the New Testament, walk, it means to live your life in this way. Paul uses that, that little clause all the time as well. John is saying, walk in the love that obeys the commands of God. And then he talks about the deceivers, the false teachers. So here's that other main theme in this postcard. So um, those who actively do not believe, in an active way they don't believe, but also those who say they believe but actively don't manifest a belief. One of the things he says is they don't confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. Is he talking about the first or second coming? It doesn't really matter. You're deceived and you're a deceiver if you don't believe in either one of those. You have to believe in both. You don't have the second coming if you don't have the first coming. And the first coming doesn't really mean anything if you don't have the second coming. So it doesn't really matter. You can get hung up on whether it's he's talking about the first or the It doesn't matter. It's both. And if you don't believe that, you... He, she, is antichrist. Wow. That's a strong word, isn't it? But think about what it 
literally means. He's not saying that you're Satan. You're not Satan. But you are against God's anointed one, anti, against Christ, Messiah, anointed one. You're against God's anointed one. That's not a position that we want to be in. It's not good for the one who is antichrist. In verse 80, he says, watch yourselves, because you don't want to lose what we've gained. We want to win the rewards. When heresy, which is another word for false teaching, when heresy is tolerated or embraced, the church actually loses strides and gains and credibility that we had in the faith. Uh, some of the worst mistakes that churches have made in the 20th and 21st century in terms of walking away from doctrine had, I understand, wonderful intentions behind them. And all it did was destroy the credibility of the church. The more the church begins to look like the world, the less there's a reason for us to even exist. You understand that? People begin to see Christianity as just another religious gimmick. And, and, and our truth and our love becomes tainted by that. So what, what we would do, we want to continue to win. That's John's word, not mine. But he says we want to continue to win the rewards of transformation. The Greek word is metamorpheo. Think about that metamorphosis. Okay, We are in the process of metamorphosis. We want to win the rewards of transformation, hope, wisdom, and the kingdom of God. And this is why faithfulness to doctrinal purity is critical. And there are always those, let me tell you, there are always those leaders in the church, leaders, who are ready and willing to change doctrinal purity under the guise of, quote, fresh interpretations. We need a fresh interpretation of this. You know, this, if there were subtexts, under there, it would be, I don't like what this means because I don't want to have to live by it. And so we need, we need a fresh interpretation. Isn't that fresh? It sounds so good. You want fresh fruit, right? You want fresh eggs. You want fresh meat. You know, all, the, all stuff, fresh deodorant. Everything that's good is fresh, right? Okay. And this is what John is amped up about. By the way, some of you remember maybe, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, all the wars over contemporary services on Sunday morning. Remember all the worship wars and all of that? And then you'd have a contemporary service and a um, traditional service, and then we, ah, we don't like the word, a classical service, okay? Whatever, you know. You have to have all this, Okay. Matt Smethurst writes this. I love this. He says, if you're proclaiming the gospel and preaching the word of God every Sunday, you already have a contemporary service. Everything else is really just a preference. That's all it is. We have chosen to do music the way we do. And that discussion's pretty well closed. But we proclaim and preach the gospel and the word of God every Sunday morning. And then verses 9 through 11, everyone who goes on ahead, I'm going to focus a little bit on that phrase, goes on ahead, and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. In other words, if you're not abiding in the teaching of Christ and yet you're charging forward, okay, you don't have God. 
Oh. It's a fairly stark statement right there. Whoever abides in, in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So this is a continuation of verses 6 through 8. The discussion of the deceivers, the false teachers. Goes on ahead. That was a common problem then. It was a common problem that people would charge out with a message, but it wasn't the message of Christ. It wasn't the teaching of Christ. It wasn't the gospel. It was a common problem then. Guess what? It's a common problem today as well. Churches sending people out, charging people out, but with absolutely no uh, doctrinal purity, no teaching of Jesus at the foundation. We're just being sent out. We're going to do good stuff. And then somebody says, why are you doing this? I, I don't know. We're just supposed to do good stuff. And, and the word Jesus is never uttered. Okay? Here you go. I, I've complained about this many times, and here we are in a Bible study. We have, we do have in the American church today a, we just need another Bible study problem. Everybody just wants another Bible study. Oh, there's a problem in this section of society. Well, let's have a Bible study about it. Okay, that, yeah, okay, great. But we also have the flip side of that coin problem as well. We have a we don't need Jesus or his scripture problem as well. We're just going to go do good stuff. And by the way, this is not the first time this has happened. This has been a recurring problem in the history of the church for centuries. Centuries. And, and, and they're both just bankrupt. And, and these verses, 9 through 11, they certainly have the character of 1 John, it seems. There's a focus on the Trinity and how each is essential. You can't have the Father with no Son. You can't have the Son with no Father. You can't have those two and no Holy Spirit. You have to have all three, the Trinity. And, and if, if you ever thought about um, the relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they live in relationship. They live in community with each other in perfect, humble yieldedness to one another. You ever think about that? That's God living in perfect, humble yieldedness. Jesus is always talking about how awesome the Father is and how um, when he goes away, he's, you're, he says to the disciples in John 15 and 16, he said, you're going to be better off when I go away because I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. So he's always pushing forward the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always pointing us to the Father and to the Son. The Father is always talking about the wonderful Son. They're, they're, it's a picture of how we're supposed to live with each other as well. Yes. Um, humble yieldedness. That, that, that word yieldedness is actually a John Ortberg word. I stole that from him, but he's not around, so he doesn't care. He's at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, by the way. He's one of the great communicators in, in the United States today. He's written a lot of books. Anybody read any John Ortberg books? Well, thank you, Tom. <laughs> okay. So, humble yieldedness. By the way, I, I keep coming back to this because I'm just on this now. I, there's many ways in which we're image bearers of God, you know. 
we, we have emotions, we're rational beings, blah, 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 all that stuff, okay? Primary way, I would argue, that we are image bearers of God because it's right there in the text that talks about us being image bearers of God in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is that we are relational beings. That's the primary way that we bear the image of God is that we need to be in relationship with each other. And not faux or pseudo-relationship either. Genuine, yucky, messy, awkward, uh, metaphorically speaking, flesh-on-flesh relationships. That's why internet church really doesn't work. I know it's convenient, and I know it's wonderful that you can go to your favorite coffee shop and watch your favorite preacher, but you're not in relationship, you're not in community, you're not in church, you're not doing what you're called to do. And I know that's, well, you've got a dog in that horse, in that race, Frank, because you're a pastor. Yeah, but it's true. It doesn't change the fact that that's true. You, you can't be a Christian and not go to church. You just can't. And if you're a shut-in, the church is supposed to come to you. Okay? But also in that yieldedness comes power for us, wisdom for us, hope for us, mercy in us. I saw a tweet tonight. I loved it. Um, Humility trumps everything. Um, I can't lose if I'm not competing with you in the first place. (laughs) Right? (laughs) There's power in that, you know? You ever done that with somebody? They they just they want to just they want to throw down and get in. You're like I'm I'm not going to play. And then what do they do? They accuse you of winning by not playing. Okay, whatever. There's power in that. Okay. He says, "Do not receive him into your house." What? Okay. Here's what he's saying. Don't receive him into the church. Okay. Now we got to explain this a little. This this needs to be explained. Okay. Okay. Not unbelievers. He's not talking about unbelievers here. He's not saying that we should be standing at these doors every week checking everybody's Christian credentials when they come in. That's not what John is saying. We want unbelievers to come here and hear the gospel. We want them to be welcomed. We want them to come and get into our seas and be in relationship with us. We desperately want that. He's saying... The ones that you have to refuse are those who claim to be believers but are, not, but are not adhering to or submitting to the faith or the doctrines of Christ and are seeking positions of influence. And if you don't think that goes on in churches, you, you've either just n- never been in the circles where that happens or you're, you're in denial because it happens all the time. People who deny the faith People who deny the doctrines of Christ but are desperately seeking positions of influence and leadership in the church. Happens all the time. Why do you think we, why do you think pastors are compared to shepherds so often? And shepherds protect the sheep sheep from what? Wolves. Dave. Yes, it makes sense, and I would say that some are thoroughly, have thoroughly deceived themselves. They really legitimately believe they're doing what's right. 
And it's obviously very hard to correct people that have that issue. It also can become a pathology. There's, there's some psychology involved sometimes. Um, there's also just people who want to uh, use the church as a way to gain influence, and they really don't care about doctrine, and, th and they're fine with that. Those are generally actually the easiest ones to, to work with and try to help figure out. Because they're the ones who will, once they're confronted, they'll leave and go try another church. There, there are many of those who, there's a psychology of it or that they're self-deceived. They won't, they'll just keep trying, keep trying, no matter what. But that's a really good question. There's all kinds of different motivations um, for that. Um, there is wickedness because somebody has rejected Jesus. There is, there is that wickedness. Somebody has rejected Jesus. They just say, I, I don't believe you guys are, okay. And there's a certain amount of ignorance in that. But then there is wickedness, all capital letters, wickedness. That's those who practice and teach evil under the guise of faith. This is what Jude is going to talk about in our fourth week. That's all he wants to talk about, okay? And believe me, here you go. They do way more damage to a church than non-believers do. Way more damage to a church than non-believers. As a pastor... I spend way more resources, time, energy, emotion, and even sometimes money, on, not on those who don't believe, but it's on those who say they are Christians, and then really all they're here to do is to disrupt and deceive. And there, like I said, there are many of them. They get, and they get support from others in the church because they go around and stir others up in the church. That's why John is constantly saying, test the spirits. You got to be looking out for this. You, you, Jackie has talked about this so often. Jackie, my wife, and she's she's her greatest spiritual gift is discernment. It has only failed her once in her life, and that was about thirty-one years ago. <laughs> um, but she I, she has this incredible level of discernment, and and she says that one of the biggest problems in church is that is that we just assume that if somebody's at a church, we can trust them with everything. And, and, and then we're, we're way behind the game when something gets out of hand. And that, and that becomes a problem, okay? And then they get, they get implicit support from pastors who, and this is my term, and I'll explain it, pastors who do not stand them up at the blue line. Does anybody know what it means to stand somebody up at the blue line? Anybody know it? It is a hockey term. What does it mean? You just knew that because of the blue line, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. If the Corleones played hockey, that would be a beautiful thing, I'm telling you. So in order to be a good hockey team, when the other team has the puck and they're rushing up the ice, okay, they're trying to gain the offensive zone. You're playing defense. There's a blue line there. You can let them rush all the way up to the blue line, but what you need to do with the on-rushing team is you have to stand them up at the blue. If you just let them walk across the blue line with a puck and set up shop, you're not going to win hockey games. It's called standing them up at the blue line. 
Line your guys across and, and make sure that the only way they can get the puck in the zone is to shoot it in. It's called dump and chase. Shoot it in and then go chase after it. It's the only way they're supposed to be able to do that. You need to stand people up at the blue line. Pastors need to stand deceivers and false teachers up at the blue line. Because once they enter the zone and they go on the offense, it's trouble. You're, you're behind in the game at that point. You're losing the game at that point. That's a little inside baseball for you. See, I'm mixing my sports metaphors now for you. But that's a little inside baseball for you on, on churches and church um, leadership. So the gospel which we proclaim, John is all about the gospel that we need to be proclaiming. That's what we need to be rooted in every time we gather. Implicitly, explicitly, whatever. And every time you're alone. How often do we say you need to preach the gospel to yourself every single day? You need to remember who you are and who God is and the fact that he loves you ruthlessly and radically in spite of all of that. Okay? And here's the thing. Gospel means good news. Uh, this, is just, this has been driving me crazy for, oh, about 30 years. Um, the, the idea that, that there's good news... But we, we got to quit telling people the bad news. We shouldn't, talk, we shouldn't talk about sin. We shouldn't talk about evil. That, that stuff's, that's, that's a downer. Don't talk about that stuff. How do you have good news if there isn't bad news? I don't understand that. Right? Okay. Um, think about the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Think about that story. So this is... This is Jesus, the story of him washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper, right? You all know the story? You ever really slowed down and read the story? How often in the midst of this beautiful act of humble service, Jesus references what Judas is about to do? It's a central theme to the washing of the feet. He keeps, he's like, I'm going to wash your feet. He has this exchange with Peter. He, you know, the whole thing. And at every couple of verses, he's like right back at Judas and what Judas is getting ready to do. Why? You ever think, why is he talking so much about Judas in the midst of this beautiful foot washing event? Because Jesus knows you have to contrast good with something. You have to contrast it with evil. How do you know what good is if you don't recognize evil in the world? There's, there's a contrast between service and selfish. There's a contrast between humility and arrogance. There's a contrast between sacrifice and self-exaltation. There can be no good news without understanding the bad news. And, and reconciliation. Reconciliation. We are reconciled to God, right? Through Jesus Christ. If you just hear the word reconciliation, what does that tell you? There was a breach. There was a divide. There was a chasm. There was a problem. There was something that had to be mended, something that had to be fixed, so, something that had to be brought back together. And that will always come under attack from Satan. It just will. 
the, the minute we start talking about the good news because there is bad news, because of the human nature that is in every single one of us, including me, your pastor, your leader, and every other pastor out there. If we don't talk about the bad news, and when we do, that's when the attacks start to come. I can't tell you how many times um, we've had spiritual attacks here, and I've had members of the congregations, congregation come up and say, this is happening because Redemption Church preaches the gospel. That's why it's happening. There's no other reason that this would be happening here. And, and I say redemption, big R redemption, because this is our thing. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused. That's, that's, of our seven core values, that's number one. Gospel-centered, outward-focused. Number two, all of life is all for Jesus. <laughs> and then the other five, which are really good, but we don't have time to say them every Sunday. Right? The, the gospel naturally provokes Satan to action, and he's cunning at using us as well. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield writes this, the mission of the Bible is to transform the nature of humanity. That's why we know inherently it's a dangerous text. We just know that. And, and we can certainly gather from what John says here that the gospel is an either-or proposition. There, there's, there's no fluffiness there. There's no mushiness. There's no spectrum it's an either-or. Uh, the scholar S.M. Baugh writes this. You cannot be partly alive, but a little dead. He sounds like he's been watching um, Princess Bride, right? <laughs> you cannot be partly alive, but a little dead. And you cannot be partly dead, but a little alive. You and I are either dead or alive. We either believe in Jesus or we don't. We cannot have it both ways. We are either sinners redeemed and saved by grace, or we are sinners destined for hell. We aren't redeemed people who now get to sin. And then verses 12 and 13, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be made complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Verse 12 is more applicable today than it was back then, right? Digital communication and social media. It's my favorite quote from the communication scholar John Jeanette. Uh, I remember before Facebook, people used to get their actual faces together. That's where real community happens, you know. And the sister is John's church in Ephesus. That's the, the, the children of your elect sister. In other words, the church in Ephesus greets you. Not exactly sure which church he's writing. It probably Colossae. So, last little bit of application the lady is the church. And we just cannot, we just can't, again, I know I have a dog in this race, but we can't underestimate the importance of the local church. And we've been talking about the importance of that quite a bit in the book of Ephesians. Let me take you back to Ephesians chapter 3 and just remind you of what Paul writes there. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the will of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. That word mystery there, didn't Cody do a nice job of helping us understand what mystery really means? It's not something that can never be known. The mystery is something that is actually revealed to us in Christ Jesus, but there's an element of the supernatural that does it. There's a miracle there. So it's a mystery. In other words, it's, it's something that we should treasure because we are, in, we are inside of that mystery now. You know? And by the way, I'm sorry, this is a little self-indulgent, but I, I, Paul writes this, I'm the very least of all the saints and this grace was given. I, I identify with that too. You, you understand that I was 28 years old and I had never read anything in the Bible. There were only two Bible words that I knew. Jesus was one of them, my favorite cuss word, and Moses was the other one, and he played in the National Basketball Association. That's all I knew about the Bible. How does, how does a guy like that end up becoming a pastor, no less at Redemption Church, which in my humble opinion is the greatest of all churches? So that, anyway, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, so that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is revealed. Church is not just a social club or a cause club. If done well, church is going to cause discomfort. If done well, church is going to cause discomfort. And again, there are many people who want to make the church in their image and not in the image of Christ. And that's something that we will fight against until, the church will fight against until Jesus comes again. And it's awkward, and it's flesh on flesh. There's friction, there's tension. And, and all of us need to, to, to have a willingness to leave our preferences unfulfilled for the greater good. I know that's hard. Cody has a vision for how services are supposed to, to go, to progress. And, and what he studies the songs that we use all the time. And, and I have preferences on songs. A anybody else have preferences on songs? And, and, and you know... If it doesn't fit what he's trying to do for the church, he by the way, Cody doesn't do songs that he prefers either, necessarily. There are some that he likes. The ones he's written, he kind of likes those. By the way, those are the ones that we seem to like the best, too. <laughs> you know? But do you understand that? It's the idea of laying your preferences aside in order to, to 
acquiesce to something bigger, a greater good, because that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus laid all of his preferences aside. All right. What are you guys going to do with your extra three minutes? We're finishing three minutes early. Isn't that exciting? All right. Next week, 3 John, and then the week after that, Philemon, and then Jude. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and its truth. And um, uh, We just pray that as we study these, these um, shorter letters that, uh, that seem to go so often unnoticed, um, that you would uh, bring light to them, that you would illuminate the truth with your Holy Spirit, and that you would give us the grace and the courage to be able to live out what, what we're being called to in these letters. Help us to appreciate the, the history and the context uh, that these letters were written in, but also uh, the gospel application that they have in our lives. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. See you Sunday. Yes. Yes.